Our sermon text this morning is from the book of Acts, chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, and he raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Before I actually get into my sermon and pray, I want to explain what our neighborhood walks are like. I realized um, I have an idea in my mind, and I've never explained that before. Uh, and so why are we doing this? What's the goal? What's the long-term hope, plan? So when we go out, we're not going door to door. My gut feeling is that um, most people don't want us knocking on their door. Um, I don't want people knocking on my door, uh, invading my personal space. Um, and so we don't go door to door. What we do is we walk out into the neighborhood and we look for people who are either sitting out on their porch um, or are walking around. And we feel like that's more fair game. If you're out on a public sidewalk, we're going to come talk to you. And so really we're going out and we're just, we're looking for who's outside. And we go up to them and we say, hey, we're from Vine Street Baptist Church. We're just trying to meet our neighbors. Do you live around here? And we see where it goes. And it's very much a spirit-led um, project. We don't know who's going to be out. We're trusting the Lord to guide us to the people who have spiritual interests. Um, and, and as we go out and do this, um, this is a more of a long-term strategy. We're not, I mean, God in his providence can bring people to faith when we go out, but really the, the point is what will be the outcome after doing this for three or four years, going out once a month, uh, the connections or relationships we'll be building, um, the opportunities to bear witness, um, what will be the kind of long-term outcome of this? How will this help us to be a better faithful witness in this neighborhood? And we're already seeing fruit, people who, you know, the, the goal is when we meet someone when we go out into the neighborhood, the goal is to develop a relationship that we might begin to follow up with them, meet up with them. And there's an individual who lives right on Schiller uh, who I am meeting up with, and he actually asked me, I talked to him on the phone yesterday, and he asked if he could bring some friends of his to our meetings when we read the Bible together. So that's like, that's the gold standard. That's what we're looking for um, and, uh, and when we go out. So if, if you, so if you join us on Saturday, uh, you know, and you're very uncomfortable, we'll, you don't have to say anything. We'll go out in groups of two or three, um, and you can just go with a group and, and just silently pray while someone else does all the talking. Um, but it's a really exciting, to me, it's a very exciting experience to go out in faith in the Spirit that he will guide us um, and really dependent upon, upon the doors that he will open. Now, uh, some of us are not physically able. We might have jobs or we have kids at home and it's just not possible to come. 
So we're going to create a group and planning center for our neighborhood walks. And if you join that group, or I may just add everybody, I'm not sure how I'm going to work this, but we're going to send updates as we're out uh, in the neighborhood. So hey, we just met with a guy named so-and-so, had a great conversation, pray for him. And so again, like you may not be able to join us, but you can join in the mission of the church by praying. Um, and hopefully some of these updates that we're sending out will give you ways to pray that are a little bit more um, effective than just kind of praying generic prayers for an hour while we're out. So again, set aside the time, even if you can't make it in person, uh, set aside that hour and pray for us as we go out. Um, Because the harvest, guys, the harvest is plentiful. It's the workers that are few. And so we're trying to step into into that gap. Let's pray. Christ, we come with humble hearts, with desperately needy hearts. You know the, the burdens we carry. You know the needs we have. You know, you know all things. So in your grace and your mercy, may you remind us that you are real, that you are near to us, that you come to us in grace and faith. Open our hearts to what it is you want to speak to us. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So Vine Street Baptist Church, we've never been the biggest church in town. Um, there's always been a bigger church, you know. We hear of a, lot of, a lot of our older members used to go to Walnut Street, which was the, you know, the uh, original mega church in Louisville. So we're never the biggest church. We've never been the wealthiest church. We're not a, uh, a Crescent Hill Baptist Church type church. We've never been that way. Uh, we've never been the coolest church, although I would say it's just because people don't know what cool is. Um, but that's never been, I mean, people have never been known for that. But I will tell you this, Vine Street Baptist Church has a deeper and fuller legacy of compassionate service than any church I have ever been to. And I grew up in the church, I've been to a lot of great churches. Has a deeper and fuller legacy of compassionate service to one another and to this church. Um, I was hoping we have some more of our younger members here. Thank you, Jessica and Brian Paul, for being here. If you're younger, you may not know the legacy. Sorry to call you out, I'm sorry. That's, that's like number one, never do that in a sermon. Um, uh, but a lot of our younger members probably don't even know the full legacy. So I want to give some examples of the legacy of compassionate service that this church has had. Uh, we used to run a daycare out of our church starting in the 70s and continued into the early 2000s. Uh, and many of the kids were from this neighborhood and many of them qualified for government, government assistance to come to daycare, which means these were kids coming from low-income backgrounds, many of them from single mom, single dad homes, oftentimes coming from pretty chaotic uh, home lives, but five days a week, they came here and they were loved by our staff who provided a stable environment, a loving environment for at least those five days a week. And they did that for decades. And you'll meet people in Louisville who went to this daycare growing up. It's really crazy. Uh, Likewise, uh, we used to have a youth group. And, And if you came on a Wednesday night Uh, you know, in the early 2000s or late 90s, there'd be over 70 kids in this building, not all in the youth group, it'd be K to 12, but they'd all be from the neighborhood, most of them unchurched kids. Again, many of them coming from pretty tough backgrounds, but coming here and, 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 and hearing about Jesus and experiencing love and stability. Mickey has an amazing story about a girl who kind of grew up through the program who came from a, a, a tough background, and she would act out a lot. And there, there was even times when Mickey had to ask her to leave. She was in the youth group. She'd be, she'd be so, the girl would be so just out of control. She had to ask her to leave. And she came, and then one day she disappeared, and Mickey never saw her again. And maybe five or ten years later, this girl 
reached out to Mickey, found Mickey, and let her know that she'd become a Christian. And she said, Mickey, I want you to know, I didn't become a Christian when I was coming to Vine Street, but that Wednesday night was a refuge in my chaotic, very difficult home life. But every Wednesday night, I would come, and, and it was the one stable part of my life. That's just two institutional, programmatic ways that Vine Street has ministered and compassionately served, especially people who are on the margins, who are the most vulnerable, but you could talk about a food pantry used to have, you could talk about all, like, hundreds, not hundreds, but tens of, of various programs and ministries of Vine Street throughout the decade, decades have been involved in. But it hasn't just been programmatic. Individually, we've been a church that served one another, cared for one another, and cared for those outside of our church really well. I'm going to give a couple examples. I hope I don't embarrass anybody. Um, Wally Jeffries, the late husband of, of Betty Jeffries, one of the longtime members of our church, um, he used to come every Sunday and bring a quarter, one quarter for every kid in church. And he'd give it to the kids so they had something to put in the offering. Now you may think, that's not a big deal. But to a kid it is, to have something they could put in the offering. Uh, these were not, you know, Wally's kids. They weren't even his grandkids. But he, every, every Sunday, he cared about this. Small act of love. And you may think, again, that's not a big deal, Mike. But Jesus thought it was a big deal when he said, if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to these little ones, these children who are my disciples, I tell you that person will certainly not lose their reward. Another example, um, Donnie and Jenny Abersol used to visit Willa Blaine. She was a longtime member, last couple years of her life. By the time I got to Vine Street, she was in a nursing home and wasn't able to come. But Donnie and Jenny Abersol would visit her every week and bring her a meal. There are family members who do not visit their family members once a week when they are in nursing homes. Donnie and Jenny were not related to Willa, but that's just, it was just a quiet, unspoken, underspoken act of love. And if you took those two examples and you multiplied them by hundreds over the decades, you get a sense of the culture of compassionate care and service and love this church has had for one another. Now we're in the middle of a Church of Values series I'm going to go over them real quickly. Again, we first looked at, it's a four-part series. We first looked at biblical faithfulness. We want to be a church that's marked by biblical faithfulness, a church that's marked by spiritual maturity. And the third one we're at is a church that's marked by compassionate service. And then next week we'll look at local ministry, and that will finish up this four-part series. But when myself and our leadership team, our deacons and staff, met last fall to look at what, what kind of, you know, cap, captures our church, compassionate service was an obvious an obvious example, because of this legacy I just described. But one of the things to consider about our values is that every value is both indicative, which means it's describing our church, right? Uh, but then every part is also aspirational, which means we're aspiring to be more biblically faithful, aspiring to be more spiritually mature, more com- you know, have more compassionate service. And so when we look at compassionate service, it's, it's, it's got an indicative aspect because we have this long legacy of decades of, of just beautiful Christ-imaging service and love and care. But our church is changing fast. I've only been here three years, and yet already the church is significantly younger than when I first came. And there's sadness in there as we say goodbye to beloved ones, and there's also joy as God restores his church. But the question is, will we continue to be a church that exhibits this kind of 
compassionate service, we continue to be a church that is marked by the love of the one who is gentle and lowly in heart. So that's the aspirational part of compassionate service, not to rest on our laurels of what went before, but how can we continue to be this remarkable body of Christians who just love one another and love others in very practical, um, Christ-exalting ways. And so we're going to be looking at Acts 3 as we consider this idea of compassionate service. And here's my main, thir- my main thesis or idea for you, which is this, that Christian love, when we talk about love as a Christian, how we love, Christian love is marked by loving God and loving people, both. And if we diminish either of those, we impoverish our love. Christian love is marked by loving God and loving people. And if we miss either of those two aspects, we impoverish our love. Our outline this morning, where we're going, is first, the early Christians loved practically. Now, I'm, I'm using that, when you talk about compassionate service, it's kind of a narrower segment under just what we could call practical love. Loving a way that matters, that makes a difference, that, that has a, you know, loving someone practically, not just emotionally. So, so when I say early Christians loved practically, it's just another saying early Christians demonstrated compassionate service. Early Christians loved practically. Second point, why the early Christians loved practically. And then third point, takeaways on practical love. Now, some context here for uh, Acts 3. Acts chapter 1 and 2 are pretty exciting chapters. You have the ascension of Jesus in chapter 1, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the commission, wait for the Holy Spirit, and he will clothe you in power, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Um, Incredibly powerful passage. And then chapter 2 is a real humdinger of a chapter because it all happens. As the disciples are praying in an upper room, the Spirit descends as tongues of fire. They go out speaking in languages they'd never learned. Uh, And God works an incredible miracle. Thousands become Christians. These are things that none of us had ever seen in person. And the chapter 2 ends with the people who've all become Christians are, 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 are so taken up taken up in their love for Jesus. They're pooling their resources. They're they're basically living in the temple. They're putting their lives on pause. They want to devote everything they have to Christ. This is spiritual revival in its fullest. That's how chapter two ends. And then comes chapter three, and we get this healing of a man who was born with some kind of paralysis. So let's go ahead and, and, and look at verse one here, the setting now Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That would have been about 3 p.m. It was probably a regular, it was called the Tamid sacrifice. It was a, a, a daily sacrifice. Good Jews would go to the temple and pray. And so here the, the apostles, although they're now Christians, they're still faithful, law-abiding Jews. They're good Jews. They're going to worship with the rest of the, Jew, with the, rest of the devout Jews who are going to worship. And they see this man who is born lame, verses 2 to 3, and a man lame from birth is being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Uh, this man was born with some kind of paralysis that was significant enough he had never walked in his whole life. He didn't know any other life. Uh, and, and, and before the days of wheelchairs and, and handicap accessibility, if you were if you had some kind of paralysis, it, it meant you didn't have a lot of employment options, and so he'd spend his life begging. Now, in the Old Testament, Jews were commanded to give alms as a form of worship, and so it was likely he could survive off this, but this is his life, his standing, sitting in front of the temple, asking for money so that he might buy food for the day. 
And then we get this miraculous healing in verses four to eight. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. What I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Some important details here I want to point out for us as we think about this idea of compassionate service as Christian love being both loving God and loving people. The disciples or the apostles, Peter and John, are on their way to church. But yet, they don't view this man as a distraction. Uh, let's put this in our modern context. You're on your way to church, you're a little bit late, and there's a man alongside the road begging. How easy would it be for us to say, well, no, I need to go to church. Worshiping God is more important. But the disciples, it's not a, he's, this is not a distraction they need to get around to get to worshiping God. They address him. They don't have to pick between gospel ministry and mercy ministry. Second, this man thinks he's receiving financial assistance. They say, look at us. And he looks up. He gets, he's expecting money. But Peter, he's like, look, man, I live in basically a Christian hippie commune. I don't have any money to give you. He doesn't give the man what he thinks he needs. He gives the man what he really needs. And here's what's remarkable. Again, this isn't Peter doing this. This is Christ working through Peter. So Peter does it in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. What does he do for this man? Well, he, he heals him. But more fundamentally, he gives him a new life. This man has never known what it was to walk. He had never known what it was to be able to have employment and provide for himself, have a family, go for a stroll on a nice afternoon. When Peter healed him, he wasn't just healing him, although that's significant. He was giving this man a new life in the name of Jesus Christ. And it says that the man then went into the temple. What may not be obvious is if you, were, if you had some kind of physical infirmity, you were prohibited, based on certain uh, purity laws of the Old Testament, from going into the temple proper. This is probably the first time this man has ever gone into the temple, into the presence of God. This is what Christ does. There's obvious spiritual overtones in this. Jesus comes to the people and he gives us new life. He changes us. He makes us new and he gives us new life. But what we see, it's interesting, again, I want us to, to, to just fathom that the church has just started. There's just this mass revival, and then this happens, this act of compassionate, caring service. This is in the church from the beginning. This is not an add-on. This is like day two of revival. They're healing people. They're caring for the physical needs of people. And the reason for this is that this is a direct content continuation, a direct continuation of Jesus' own ministry. The reason the apostles did ne never viewed worship of God and mercy ministry as somehow competing is because Jesus never viewed them as competing, and he lived it. There's all kinds of parallels between what they do here in Jesus' own ministry. The most obvious one is Luke 5, when the man with paralysis is carried by his friends. They dig a hole in the roof, and they, they lower down the man, right? And, and what does Jesus first do? He says, my son, your sins are forgiven. Because the most important need is our spiritual need. But then when, you know, the Pharisees, are, their minds are exploding, like who is this man that he could forgive sins? Jesus says, 
And so you may know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. My son, take up your mat and walk. He heals him. And all of Jesus' ministry, there's, it's just, he's healing people with infirmities. He's casting out evil spirits. He's addressing physical needs while he's preaching the gospel. And so the early church, the fact that they had this compassionate love for others, it's just a direct continuity of Jesus' own ministry. We see from the very beginning, Christians were marked by compassionate service, by practical love. The early Christians loved practically. Every church should, in the same way, love practically. The early Christians' love involved both love of God and love of people. It's our first point. Our second point is why the early Christians loved practically. Why was it such a natural outflow for them that they've had this incredible revival, but it doesn't lead them to little cloisters of holy living, but it leads them to care for others? Where does that come from? Why was that such a natural progression? Well, first, it was the pattern they received from Jesus. That's how they saw Jesus live. Jesus, you know, would take time to go be by himself, pray overnight, but then he'd go back among the people. There's no monastic movement in Jesus' ministry. So it was, a, it was a pattern they received from Jesus. But second, why did the early Christians love practically? It was because they were convinced of God's love for them. And that is what sent them out. So the same man who's listed here, Peter and John, John wrote the letter 1 John. It's the same man. And he writes in 1 John 4, 10 to 11, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The disciples experienced God's love for them in Jesus Christ, and it transformed them. Who is the one healing right now? It's Peter. When you think of Peter, what do you think of? You probably think of his cowardice on the night of, of Jesus' betrayal, Probably think of a, of, of a man who had at moments great insight of faith when he stepped out of the boat. You know, he could make these grand gestures of faith. But you probably think of a man who's fairly arrogant, somewhat of a braggart. Christ, everyone will leave you, but I will never leave you. I will die for you. Not a man you think of as being compassionate. <laughs> and yet here he is. Similarly, John what is John known of? He's the son of thunder. He's known for, along with his brother James, asking Jesus to commit genocide against a village that would not receive them. But yet these two men have experienced the love of God and it's transformed them. Um, there's a book by, um, is it Leo Tolstoy? He's a Russian novelist. I started in college, couldn't get into it, and I just finished it recently. And one of the main characters in this very famous novel is a man named Constantine Levin, and he's a fairly unhappy man. He's single and he wants to be married, and so he's very morose and irritable. He's a, kind of a landowning gentry, and so he treats his, his, his workers badly, and then he feels guilty, and um, he's just an unhappy man, and the woman he loves uh, throws him over and um, uh, rejects his proposal, and he goes in this tailspin of, of, of grief, and he's just, he's just not in a good place. And then halfway through the book, the woman that he loves returns his love and, and falls in love with him back, and they get engaged. 
And this man who had previously been just very morose and very inward-looking and was annoyed with people, all of a sudden, it's, I mean, it's humorous. He's like gushing, gushing with goodwill. He's like, oh, everyone is wonderful. All these people on committees who I used to find so annoying, they're just, they're just good people. They're wonderful people. And, I mean, it's, it's a temporary change, but it's this like massive change. And if you've ever been in love, you know what I'm talking about. It's like the things that normally irritate you and when you're in the throes of love, it's like, oh, who cares? My beloved is mine and I am my beloved. Let come what may. Being loved changes us and that's just the love of a human. How much more transformative is the love of God himself? When we feel loved by a human and it changes how we interact with people, how we think, imagine how much more transformative, again, the best human loves imperfectly loves incompletely, loves temporarily. The best of marriages go through highs and lows. Imagine when the perfect, almighty, always faithful, perfectly loving God loves you completely, how transformative that could be. That's what the apostles had experienced. They experienced God's love, and that is what sent them out. Now, here's the thing. When we experience God's love, there's, there's two parts of it that are necessary for that explosive kind of outflow. It's first when we realize in the depths of our hearts that God loves sinners. When we realize that we, are, 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 we don't deserve God's love. We're unworthy in a, in a profound and utter way. If we think we deserve God's love, it's not gonna change us when he loves us because it's like, well, yeah, who wouldn't love me? I'm great. When we realize the depths of our sin and that we don't deserve it, and yet we are loved, it's transformative. But secondly, God, the first part is when we realize that God loves sinners. The second part is when we realize he loves us as a father. It's that meeting of recognizing how unworthy we are and yet the exorbitant abundance of God's love for us that he is our father. He doesn't just say, yeah, you're right, you're undeserving. Go work in my yard. I'm disapproving. He, he loves us as a father. It, it's when we understand, for those of who, who have placed our faith in Christ, who've repented and turned to him, when we realize that God is in heaven, speaking to his angels, saying, do you see that man? Do you see that woman? That's my son. It's my daughter. I am proud of them. It's when we realize both those together of God's love for sinners and God's love as a father, that's what leads to transformation of Peter from a, a you know, arrogant, braggart, coward into a man who stops for a, a man with paralysis to help him. If we want to love others, we begin by understanding and accepting God's unmerited love of sinners like us. This isn't just John who says this. Paul says it too in 2 Corinthians 5.14. He says Christ, he's, Paul is describing why he does all that he does. Why does he put his life in danger? Why does he push himself beyond, uh, you know, beyond exhaustion? He says Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. Peter and John and Paul and the early church loved others because they were convinced of Christ's love of them, despite everything. And that transformed them, and that sent them out to love in practical ways. That's our second point. Why did the early church love practically? Third point, takeaways on practical love. 
And the first takeaway for us is we think, again, we're both indicative and aspirational. What does it mean for us to be a church marked by practical love, by compassionate service? First, we can and we should, we must, conceptually differentiate love of God and love of people, but we cannot practically separate love of God and love of people. You know what I'm saying? So we can, dis- they are, it, it, is, it is a different thing to love God and love people. We can, in our minds, distinguish between those two, but in practice, they always go together or, or our love is impoverished. We must be able to dis- differentiate between love of God and love of people because Jesus differentiated conceptually when they asked him, what is the most important commandment in the Old Testament? He said, love God first. What was the second one? Love your neighbor. Jesus understood there's a difference between loving God and loving people. And in our culture, which is very confused on the nature of love, this is all the more important. You've probably driven around Louisville and seen the signs that say love is love. Um, in philosophy, you'd call that a tautology, which means that the, um, the subject is predicated of itself, which means there's no information given. There's no true definition. You're just, you're, you're not giving any knowledge. Um, but th- that's the point of the sign. It's saying, look, if someone says, I love so-and-so, what else do you need to know? That's all that matters. But as Christians, we don't believe love is love. We believe God is love. What that means is that whatever God commands, because he is love itself, whatever he commands is the most loving thing. We can't know how to love people if we don't love God first. So we have to be able to differentiate between loving God and loving people. But in practice, you can't separate them. To love God is to love people. Again, look at Acts 3. They're they're heading to worship, right? It's like, aren't they supposed to love God first? Then why would they stop for this man? It's gonna make them late to the the, uh, uh, offering that they are required, commanded to be present at. But again, for the apostles, loving this man was not in competition with worshiping God. You cannot, in practice, separate loving God and loving people. There is a strand of individualistic, egocentric Christianity that runs through the history of the church. You see it in every generation. It looks differently in different generations. For long centuries of the church, it was seen most in the kind of monastic movements. Now, I, a lot of times we'll speak badly about monasticism. At its best, monasticism was really involved in the villages that they were located in. A monastery, the monks would get out, they'd provide health services and educational services. But often, at their worst, they just turned into kind of holy clusters where men and women pursued their own purity above all else. It was a very egocentric form of Christianity. Okay, well that, you know, we're Baptists. (laughs) We don't believe in monasteries. So what's something a little bit closer home for us? I think one of the ways we see this kind of individualistic, egocentric Christianity in our own ranks is the tendency to see Christianity primarily about meeting our felt needs. Why do I come to church? To be filled up. To have my spiritual tank filled. Um, And obviously we hope that happens. But that's not the picture of the church in the Bible, which is primarily about coming to love and serve and care for one another. And if our primary goal of, of you know, coming to church is to have our spiritual tanks filled up, frankly, it's much easier to do that if you just listen to a podcast. Because what's the hardest part of church is the people. <laughs> because people are 
strange and they smell and they're getting your business and that's nothing more than just a very egocentric individualistic Christianity that puts the self first but we cannot in practice separate loving God from loving people they always go together biblical Christianity does not allow us to separate loving God and loving people so again 1 John 4.20 if we don't love people we can see how can we love God we cannot see we can differentiate conceptually between loving God and loving people in practice to love God means we will be loving people so the question is who has God called you to love in your life right now who are the people God's put in your life to love well, one very easy easy diagnostic question is who is your neighbor Christ told us second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor so begin with proximity. If you're married, your closest neighbor is your spouse. God has called you to love your spouse. If you have kids, your kids are your neighbors. Jesus commands you to love your kids. Uh, he commands you to love your actual physical neighbors. Who lives next to you? Do you know their names? Um, do you know anything about them? Your coworkers, and so on and so on and so on. Who are the people God has placed in your life? He wants you to love them. And then, of course, last but not least, your church. Love the people you worship with. We're not a service, we're a family. We gather together as an overflow of what should be life together throughout the week. And if this is your primary involvement, um, it's going to be hard to really love people that way. So, first takeaway, again, we can conceptually differentiate between loving God and loving people, but practically, they always go together. Second, our love must not be utilitarian, but when we love people, it oftentimes gives our witness power. Here's what I'm saying. We don't love people just so that we can share the gospel with them. People can tell when we do that, and it's, it's a desecration of, their image, of the image that they are made in. Because people are made in the image of God, every person is worthy of our attention. Here is a man with paralysis who would not have been seen as very interesting or worthy of attention, yet Peter and John say, hey, look at us. Because this man was made in God's image, he was worthy of their attention. Every person we talk to is worthy of our curiosity. Now, yes, if, if, if we believe the gospel, if we really believe the gospel that there's life abundant in Christ and forgiveness and it's only in Jesus, then the most loving thing we could do is to share Christ with someone. But we're not going to care about someone just so that we can kind of check off our evangelistic checkbox. I'll give you an example. Uh, when I went to school, um, there was a, a student group called the Wheaton Evangelism Team, and they would go to a local uh, community college every Friday afternoon and do what we're doing in the neighborhood. Go and try to talk to students and, and share the gospel. And my, I had one friend who was really involved in it and I remember talking to him after one of the times he went out and he was really frustrated because he went with a fellow Wheaton student uh, and they met with this, they were meeting with a student who just shared a remarkable level of vulnerability about what was going on in his life and he had some hard stuff going on. And the other Wheaton student, instead of asking any questions about this, just like, it was like he was on script. It was like, well, here's what I'm supposed to say. Here's, you know, I'm just going to Romans road this person. And it, and it showed no actual interest in the person, what they were going through, no curiosity in their life, and it shut the conversation down. Someone who was open to talking, again, because 
it came across like the student only cared about this person as an object to share the gospel with. Now, we want to be careful, right? He's at least going out. But we, never, we must never let our love be utilitarian. I have found when we're just curious about people, because God loves them, because they're made in God's image, and they're deserving of our curiosity, at least all kinds of ways to share the gospel, that are much less uncomfortable and much more effective. Our love must never be utilitarian. We love people because God loves them. End of story. But, 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 often when we do love people in that kind of way, it opens all kinds of doors for witness and for ministry. Again, you know, we finished in verse 10, the healing of this man, but in verse 11, what happens? While he, this man with paralysis who's been healed, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And Peter then had an opportunity to share the gospel and thousands more confess Christ. Now here's the thing. What brought the crowd? It was the miracle. Okay, if you can heal people like this, you're gonna get a crowd. What brought the conversion? Okay, the miracle brought people coming. It was the compassion, though, I think, that made people wanna listen to what Peter and John had to say. Peter could have just made a sign in the sky But it wouldn't have made people, they would have been like, wow, do that again, that's cool. But it wouldn't have made them listen to his words of the coming kingdom and forgiveness that's found in Jesus. It wouldn't have opened them to that. But when we love people, there's just something compelling about that that opens people to actually want to listen to what we have to say. Again, you know, in, in seminary, your professors will tell you people don't care. People will never care how much you know until they know how much you care. There's just truth to that. Again, we don't love people out of utility, but in God's providence is often one of the ways that we have most power in our outreach. We love people for God loves people, and often in doing so, it opens doors to share about Christ. So in conclusion, one of our church values is compassionate service, or as I've been calling it, practical love. Jesus demonstrated it in his ministry. If we wanna walk with Jesus, we'll look like Jesus, and it's one thing that he valued. It was a value of Christians from the beginning. Again, we're in Acts 3. The church is like a baby. This is not a secondary function of the church. It was basic from the beginning. And the reason it was basic is that it's a direct result. This kind of practical love, compassionate service, is a direct result of knowing the love of God and Jesus for sinners like us. And so may we as a church, too, Know the love of God for sinners, which is the love of a father, and may it send us out as well in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, may we be worthy of your name to know that you care about people, you care about their stories, you care about what's going on, you care, Christ, you care about the neighbors we live next to, whom we don't think about probably most of the time, but you think about. You care about our coworkers. You care about all of those we pass every morning when we walk to a coffee shop or when we go running. Your heart beats for them. May our heart as well. May we be a church that is never in, inward looking alone ever. May we be a church that sees you that that encounters the living Christ and experiences the love that transforms us and sends us out. May your love compel us. We ask you to do this by your spirit.
May we be willing. We pray this in the name of our beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.